Welcome to This Week in Theater, courtesy of Broadway Radio Network. I am Broadway star's Jennifer McHugh. And I'm Broadway Radio's Matt Tamanini. This Week in Theater is a new bi-weekly podcast talking about regional theater productions around the U.S. This week, we'll be talking about theaters in Seattle, Washington, Ashland, Oregon, Sarasota, Florida, Berkeley, California, and a national tour stop in Orlando, Florida. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jen. That was normally when we do podcasts together, I'm the one doing the intro, so I kind of loved the fact that you were doing it. <laughs> Thank you. I was very nervous. I wouldn't wouldn't have known, especially you are a, a theater major. You have plenty of experience performing. Yes, but I've I've transitioned to behind the scenes That's uh, for way long now. Yeah. Matt, you and I both had interviews this week and talking to some regional professionals around the country. And do you want to tell us who you spoke to? I do. Uh, I spoke with uh, Nataki Garrett, who is the artistic director at the world-renowned Oregon Shakespeare Festival. After serving as the acting artistic director for the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Theater Company, she took over at OSF in April of 2019 and has since had to guide the company through the pandemic balancing the financial, artistic, and human difficulties associated with making art during COVID. Now, part of that process has been embracing digital opportunities, which has long been a priority and passion of hers. Those efforts led to Garrett through OSF, executive producing a short film called You Go Girl, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival just last month. In our conversation, we discuss how the film came to be and how it fits into the festival's overall mission. We also look more broadly at the financial difficulties facing arts organizations around the country as they attempt to rebuild following a year to two years of being shuttered. Garrett recently testified in front of Congress in conjunction with the Be An Arts Hero program, and she shares what she hopes comes from those efforts. She also gives me a behind-the-scenes look at OSF's exciting 2020 season. We started our conversation talking about how she balances all of the varied responsibilities of leading one of the country's preeminent arts organizations, as well as trying to live and survive during a pandemic. Well, this is a, I'm sure it's always a busy time for you, but I feel like everywhere I turn, your name is popping up between Sundance, Capitol Hill, and Oregon. Uh, things seem to be very busy for you right now. And you, before we started recording, you've got a little one running around. So I'm guessing that keeps you very busy as well. <laughs> yes, um, it, it is a, a busy life as, a, as a, a leader in the American theater. And it's funny, when I was not a leader, I was I would watch my um, the people I revered in this role and think, wow, how do you do it all? And now if you ask me how I did it all, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Isn't that how it always is? It's like you you stand back and kind of awe at the people who can get things done. And then when you're put into those situations, either by choice or by chance, you find a way to get it done, but it never actually seems like you're getting it done. It's just, I, I've heard somebody kind of talk about when it, I think it might've actually been Lin-Manuel Miranda, writing a musical is kind of like a miracle. You start and you don't know how you're going to do it. And when you finish, you still don't know how you did it. Um, it feels like for all creators, that's kind of the way things happen. It is. It's all, as the guy said in the, in the movie, uh, Shakespeare in Love, it's all a mystery. You mm -hmm. just sort of keep moving and it's a miracle. You know, you keep moving because you're compelled and inspired and your imagination is moving and you just, you know, wake up in the morning and you do what you have to do. And then you wake up the next day and you, and you do more and, and uh, you don't do the same thing over again. You do more. 
Yeah. And I think that's how you get through it. Yeah. And speaking of getting through it, we are uh, nearly two years into a pandemic that has really wreaked havoc on the theater community. And you have been outspoken about that um, most recently testifying uh, on Capitol Hill, in which we talked about um, on our daily news uh, podcast. But I want to get to the theater stuff. But the thing that is like timely the most right this second is Sundance just started and you are the executive producer behind a short film that is premiering at Sundance. And obviously Sundance, like most things, uh, has gone virtual um, here recently. But can you just tell me, how did you get involved with You Go Girl, which is really this sweet and touching um, and pretty funny um, uh, short film? So... um for the pandemic, the director and uh, one of the producers of the film, who is um, a, a co-partner in the production company, Alalea. And so we co-produced it with Alalea. Mm-hmm. But Sharifa Ali is um, is a stage director as well. And so she was here. We had just opened her play and closed it within six days. Uh, this sort of uh, information about the pandemic mm-hmm. proliferated across the landscape she decided to hunker down here for a little while instead of going back to New York, which is where she was living. And um, and so I asked her if she would, uh, if she wanted a residency since she's here and she's such a prolific artist. I was like, I can't not take advantage of her being here. I have to do something about it. We were just in the middle of starting our, our uh, digital producing arm. So I asked her if she wanted to have a residency Um, that would focus on the digital producing arm in which she could just interface with what we were doing and, you know, and and maybe have a, I don't know, a way of talking about that work. That's where it all started. Um, She came back to me with a list of of pitches that she wanted to give me. um, And there were a couple of films in there. The first film that we did together um, called Ashland, um, a really beautiful little film as well. It's a, it's a short and it's about, um, it's about reconciling with your past self. You know, it's about um, honoring who you've been so that you can, you know, blossom becomes and can become some, something better. And it's about rejuvenation. And it was really reflective of her experience here in, uh, in Ashland, Oregon, um, be feeling re- rejuvenated to be able to get back into the work that she came here to do and the work that she does. Um, and so when she asked if, you know, she could do another film, we were like, of course, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and, and the, and because it's, you know, it's a co-production, um, you know, there are a lot of resources that it takes to support a film. And all of that comes from the work that I do here at OSF. So that's how I am an executive producer is because yeah. the platform and the resource and the, you know, those things that sort of, you know, people don't see are, are the things that I'm responsible for. Yeah. And you mentioned that first film, uh, Ashland, obviously references the actual city that uh, that OSF is in. This film, You Go Girl, also has some really uh, important like logistical and like locational connections to uh, to Oregon as well as part of the story, but also kind of bridges that gap as somebody living in in. Uh, in New York, like you said uh, she was, and then coming back with a really intense emotional purpose, not to spoil anything, um, to Oregon. For for those theater fans who don't necessarily, you know, if they go on vacation, they go to 
you know, New York or London and don't spend a lot of time thinking about Oregon in general. This is a place that has been really fruitful artistically for a lot of folks for decades and generations. What don't people know about Oregon and the arts community there that, you know, is important for people to kind of realize um, that it's not just the mountains and, and, you know, ducks football. Yeah. So um, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival was founded in 1935. In a typical year, we welcome nearly 400,000 people from all over the world wow. to our town. Um, and our, the town of, Oregon, of Ashland, Oregon is about 20,000 people and has the same density of restaurants and hotels per resident as New York and Paris. So if you can imagine the kind of Aspen <laughs> in Oregon, yeah. that's where we are. We are the, the Park City of Oregon. Um, uh, and so the swelling of our town around this work that we do on the stage is, is a, is a, a tradition, a longstanding tradition for a lot of families, not just from Oregon, but from the entire region. And we're sort of, I guess, uh, we would be reflective of the Stratford Festival in, um, in Canada, uh, that a lot of people on the, on the West, on the East Coast go to. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is that same kind of a thing. I think people, what people miss is that, Ashland doesn't just offer, you know, the sort of trees and the sort of beauty. Um, and, and when you're not in a smoke, uh, a heavy smoke year, it's the clean air that the trees offer. Um, but there's, you know, we have uh, some of the best wineries in, in, um, in, okay. the, in the world. Um, and, uh, and the best Pinot Noir grape in, in, uh, in, in the country. Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of things that this area offers. You can go... Um, whitewater rafting and then go to a winery and then go see a play and then go have a really good meal all in the same day. Um, You know, so people do come here for vacation. And one of the things that I think the town learned is that even though the theater was closed during much of the pandemic, uh, that people were coming here for um, to get away from the major cities during the heights of the pandemic in 2020, um, because uh, we don't have a density, a high density, it's rural. Um, you could come here, you could get your Airbnb and you could be safe and, you know, you could go to a restaurant or have something ordered. Um, and then when we opened last year, a lot of those same people came back to see the show that we had on our outdoor stage. And so um, I think that people don't know. It's a big secret. I'll say that, that the Oregon Shakespeare Festival nationally, for some, is is a very well-kept secret. And um and I and it's funny because I grew up in the Bay Area, which is just, you know, a few hours down the road. Sure. My high school took regular trips up to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival every year. And I never knew about it. My high school theater uh, department did it every single year and I never knew about it. And um, so so I think that there's something about it being a secret, you know, that people like that. And now it's not it's not a secret anymore. Um, and I'm not the, the, the I didn't lead that. I'm, I'm sort of inheriting the work that my predecessors Libby Apple did and, and Bill Rausch, you know, I, I, that's why I'm here. That's why I came to OSF is to continue to amplify the impact that we have um, and how important it is to the region. Um, but the export that we have as an organization is not just theater. It's, you know, it's film, it's VR, it's, um, you know, there are a lot of, of ways in which you can enjoy what we do at OSF and Ashland. Yeah. And obviously these short films that you're mentioning are are part of that. So what is the digital arm of OSF, you know, really looking to do and how does that um, integrate and and comment on and amplify the things that you are doing 
on stage during your normal theatrical year? Uh, so the digital producing arm is called O, which in Shakespeare, O is a complete sentence, uh, O exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually was the reason, it's one of the things that I interviewed with. I, I talked about the possibility for um, OSF to really invest in um, in digital producing because I felt like it's one of the few highly resourced, you know, we were a $44 million theater at the top of the pandemic. So it's one of the few highly resourced theaters that actually has the uh, ability and bandwidth, but the necessity because of the the amazing Shakespeare work that we were doing. But also, I don't know if um, your listeners know this, but you know we're we're responsible for a number of, of the uh, most important plays of the last ten years, um, mm-hmm. all the way um, uh, Sweat by Lynn Nottage and uh, Indecent, um, all came from OSF commission. So we don't just do Shakespeare in the classical plays. We're, we're, we use Shakespeare because um, he is the namesake playwright of the organization. It would originally was a, uh, solely a Shakespeare theater, but not long after um, the second uh, artistic director, uh, Jerry Turner took over, you know, OSF really started to focus on plays that were not just Shakespeare to broaden the horizon, to use Shakespeare as a platform, but not necessarily as the sole voice of the theater. Um, and so uh, the digital work is the extension of that, right? So I'm just pulling a thread. Really, no entity uh, can continue to do business in the way that it has. Film is our entrance into Sundance, but it really positions my theater to have a wide-reaching impact. And, and my focus is about access. I want to shift this tie that OSF is a, is a secret. I want to provide doors in as many homes as possible and one of the ways I can do that is through the work that we're doing um, in the digital landscape. And one of the conversations across all of theater, even before the pandemic, but especially during uh, these past two very, very difficult years, has been access not only in the digital space like you were talking about, um, but getting populations and audience members who wouldn't normally be seeing um theater in any form, whether it's Shakespeare or anything else, um, that's been something that a lot of people have tried to uh, revolutionize uh, during this this time of, of a, you know, unfortunate downturn in, in theater shows and attendance. How do you take that next step with access from the digital space to the physical space um, once your season gets back going um, here, you know, in the coming months? So this, the, the truth still remains that OSF is a destination theater, which means you have to get in your car mm-hmm. or get on a plane and choose to come up here or get in a, in, a, in a bus with a group of other people. And and so because of that, I'm a little bit different than my colleagues across the field in that um, it, it has always been about access. You know, it has always been a space that people came to because they had a way, a, met, a, a way of uh, transporting themselves here. Uh, unlike my my colleagues who, you know, you get out of your bed and you decide in the morning you're going to go see a play and you walk around the yeah. corner and you go to the play, right? Um, so because of that, that access thing um, is is actually the key um, that we need at this juncture. Theater at its, at, its, at, its, at its best is an experience with its arms wide open. Um, and these efforts open our arms wider. This is really at the center of why we exist for the public good. Um, when you can you can serve the twenty thousand you have locally or the fifty thousand uh, you know across the valley, but um, uh, fifty or sixty thousand across the valley. But if you can serve the multitudes uh, because of the resource that you have and because you have a way of 
of putting yourself in people's um, hands, you should do that. Here's the thing is that um, I do believe that there's this sort of mythology that if people access the work that you do um, digitally, they won't have a need to come. And mm-hmm. everything about the pandemic has proven that that is not the case. Yeah. So, um, you know, Hamilton was on Disney and and their tickets uh, went on sale uh, for the Broadway version before everything had to shut down on Broadway recently because of the Omicron variant. And the, and the ticket sales were boosted, right? Because people were clamoring when you watch a play uh, in the digital sphere, it actually makes you want to go sit in the theater. Um, and so um, it's not just about enticing people back. It's also about uh, introducing people that um, that may not know about what we do to the work that we do so that when they are in this country or they are in this, this, uh, this state um, or they are in this region, you know, they go, oh, I should stop by OSF while I'm driving up the coast of uh, the west coast of the country Um, or if i'm going to take a trip from san francisco to vancouver i should stop at osf and see something because of something that i saw um, in the digital sphere so it's all interconnected it's all very importantly interconnected Um, just like on the on the east coast you have the public theater working very hard to get uh, work into the commercial sphere on broadway you know and that didn't diminish the amount of people that came to see the work um, in, inside of the their theaters um, downtown, it actually increased it, you know. Um, and so access increases um, people's desire to come to the theater. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think whether it's virtual uh, performances or streaming things or filmed versions of plays and musicals, th- that myth and old wives tale, I think, has been solidly put to bed, at least from a logical standpoint. But that doesn't mean that it still doesn't rear its ugly head when people are talking about it. Uh, so nonetheless, <laughs> um, but you know, you talked about the fact that one of the reasons you wanted to get into this digital space is because of how well um, funded OSF has always been. But obviously, when the pandemic hit, all arts organizations took a significant hit financially. I know you had to make a lot of really, really difficult decisions. I mean, six months into your tenure as the artistic director. And since then, you have come back with a season. You have your next season coming up. And just earlier this week, you testified before Congress as part of the um, Be an Arts Hero campaign to get more legislation and and aid and assistance from the federal government um, to arts organizations and venue owners of all kinds. What do you think is, A, what the government local, state, municipal, whatever, federal should be doing? And what do you think is actual possible given the gridlock that we have seen on all levels um, for things like this over the past two years? So I believe that um, that there are people on Capitol Hill, our elected people on Capitol Hill um, are responding to their constituency. And and that's their that's their job. And I think it's important for the constituency then to continue to notify them of the things that are important. What I what I found to be the most compelling about um, the invitation um, to uh, to speak to to testify at that hearing and the and the people who actually we've elected to be in Congress, the way that they spoke about their love of this work is that I I for the first time I felt like I wasn't screaming into an abyss. Oh, that's you know, good. I feel like there are people who love this work who cover on on on, all, on both sides of every single aisle you can imagine. And, um, and, and they just need to hear from their constituencies that this is important to everybody. 
So the bills that that we talked about, the Creative Economy Revitalization Act, the Performing Arts Parity Act, the Arts Education for All Act, they're all bipartisan. Um, And they're all acts that right now can help shift the creative economy in, in ways that are really important. The thing, the fear that I have, you know, that uh, what I now kind of referred to as the Sophie's choice that I had um, when I had to de- I had to decide who was important um, to keeping us afloat and who who could be um, let go um, in a theater that I had really only known for a minute. Um, you know, six days into my first opening, you know, we shut everything down yeah. and we'd already spent twenty million dollars. So I had to act fast. But but what haunts me is that I knew that I had to make this choice because people don't understand the ecology of a theater. They don't know that the the stitcher is just as important as the usher is just as important as the actor is just as important as the development person, that we all work together to make something happen. What I really appreciate with the work that Be An Arts Hero um, has been doing is they're advocating for the entire ecology um, they call it the creative yeah. economy. I like to call it the creative e- ecology because we are so interdependent. You know, our fight for uh, SBOG resources, uh, we fought that fight with the Broadway League, with the League of Symphonies, with the, with, uh, the un, um, uh, independent, the National Independent Venues Association. We, we fought that fight for that access to that $15 billion together because we're an ecology. And because together we um, contribute more GDP than agriculture and mining combined. And so we have to think about the future as an ecology. If we fall into another um, you know, shuttering of, of, of the theater, we really do have to think about what does it mean to the future of our field if we let go of actors, crew members, carpenters, box office staff. You know, what it means is that there, there are these recent reports about people in the restaurant industry who are leaving. Um, so I do know as my own experience that theater artists and the restaurant industry are connected. And if you were a theater or film artist and you decided to, to use restaurant as your day job, and now both of those are shuttered and you have no access to any resource, you're gonna start to think about a different industry. Um, and so we have skilled professionals with all the talent who have all the training, who have spent billions of dollars in um, in education to prepare themselves for the work that they that they 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 desire and endeavor to do, but they have transmutable skills and they will take those skills elsewhere. And this industry will falter if we do not support them. We obviously don't know what is going to happen with the pandemic. I think we can all assume that there will be more variants in the future. How? hard hitting those are and how much of an impact they have will obviously depend on a lot of factors that neither you nor I or probably any one individual has any control over um, having to deal with who and how many people get vaccinated and take, you know, social distancing and masking seriously. But if Omicron is the last major variant to wreak unmitigated havoc on our society as a whole and the arts ecology, as you said, individually, What do you think is the trajectory of rebounding from this? How long do you think it will take to kind of not get back to to normal? Because I don't think what was uh, is ever going to be what is again. But to get back 
to regular footing when it comes to those people that have left or those people coming back or getting back to organizations, um, feeling secure financially, not just OSF, but in general with the people that you talk with, all of those different organizations, what is it going to take to feel like this hasn't completely ruined everything for everybody? <laughs> so we're in a recovery and that's how a, 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 I've been referring to it. But recently I've been thinking about a rebuilding um, OSF, um, oddly enough, was started during the Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the founder of this of this organization, Angus Bomer, had a really great idea. People need access to these stories. We can do this cheaply. He uh, he pitched it with a um, with a um, a boxing match, so that if you know if the play didn't work, then there would also always be this love, boxing match. Why is that um, not and, something we still do all the time? Like that would be amazing. You know, I be, love it. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be amazing? The yeah. beauty of that is that it's is that the theater and the arts are uh, are innovators. We continue to reinvent ourselves for our survival. So I do think the rebuilding is about, uh, not about going back, like you said, to the norms. It's a, it's really about rebuilding and restructuring and evolving ourselves uh, to that future that we had been trying to get to before the pandemic. What I feel like the pandemic did is it is it catapulted us forward. It made it so that it was impossible hmm. for us to keep some of those, those old systems in place. And OSF has been building digi- diligently to shift away from some of those practices in the theater that, you know, um, in the middle of the pandemic, there was a social uprising. Um, the, the theater community, the BIPOC theater community in particular presented a list of demands from the We See a White American Theater. The yeah. Broadway, uh, the, this one, I, I can't think of what it's called. The, there was a, a Broadway version of it, um, uh, the Black Theater on Broadway Network. They also did something, they, they they presented a list of like, could you please shift your, your practices in these ways? There was a lot of conversation about shifting and what the, what the pandemic offered us was a stop so that we could shift. And, um, and I'm taking full advantage of that. You know, I'm not building back in a structural deficit. I'm not building back in a harm deficit. I'm not interested in building back in an operational deficit in which people feel stretched to the so thin that they're not fulfilled in the work that they're doing. Um, uh, I'm cl- I'm really clear about who I was as a when I was primarily a freelance artist and and what would happen to me when I came to a theater like the one that I run now and how and how I have to shift to make sure that some of those negative experiences at least I have put in place some things to mitigate the harm. Um, and to create spaces of nurturing, centering the artist around joy, uh, giving them the tools that they need to do the work that they came here to do so that we can all benefit from the impact of that. That's what the rebuild is about. And, and I have a lot of theater, um, other sister theaters who are doing the same thing. We're really focusing on, on the efforts around shifting the way that we do the work that we do. Um, my hope is that audiences, theater makers, arts makers, the cultural, the creative uh, ecology altogether engage cross-generationally, that we're all working enthusiastically and frequently. And in order to do that, it is incumbent upon those of us who lead to really focus on shifting our systems. Yeah, I love that. Um, so real quick, you talking about a rebuild, you are getting back into your season at OSF starting in April and runs through the end of the year. Um, can we talk real quick about some of the uh, the shows in this season? Because it's a really great, uh, a really great mix of, of productions that you have coming up. 
Thank you. Yes, I'd love to talk about them. Um, so let me just say this first. I uh, This season came out of conversations that I had with the artists who are, who are doing the work. So um, the musical that we're doing, Once on this Island, came out of a conversation that we had with Lillianne Brown about what musical would she want to do. We knew we needed to, we gave her the criteria. We needed a small musical that fit this way and we could pay mm-hmm. for it like this, right? And she was like, I want to do Once on this Island. Um, in a conversation with um, Stephen Anthony Jones, who is the performer in, um, in the August Wilson piece, uh, How I Learned What I Learned, mm-hmm. um, he said to me that he was one of the few people that August Wilson anointed with um, with the um, permission to do that particular one person uh, play, yeah, and so we we actually were standing really close to Costanza Romero, who is August Wilson's widow, and uh, and and we asked her right then if you you know can we do this, and she was like by all means do it, <laughs> um, you know. So the play that I'm doing is a play that we were supposed to produce in 2020 that was canceled. I was in rehearsals for it when the when the season shut down. Um, and that's called Confederates by Dominique Morceau. I mm-hmm. love everything that Dominique Morceau writes, but this Absolutely. one in particular is reflective of our life and times, and particularly as a Black woman in a leadership position, it's, it's really reflective of mine. So every single play came out of a conversation with the artist. You know, Nick Avila, who's directing The Tempest, starring one of our premier lead uh, company members, uh, Kevin Kinnerly, who just... Um, uh, was on Broadway as a as an understudy in the play Clyde's uh, oh, by yeah. Lynn Nottage, and he uh, did a beautiful job. I actually got to see him both times. I, oh, awesome. I saw it. I saw him. I didn't get to see my friend Ron Cephas Jones, but I got to see him. And um, and so he's starring in as the lead as Prospero in The Tempest. Um, who doesn't want to see that? That's yeah. you know going to be so tremendous. So. I'm really excited about this season. And then in, in, in the digital sphere, we're releasing uh, Cymbeline. Now, I, uh, in my first year, uh, OSF used to do this process for, um, for selecting plays called Boar's Head, where everybody sat at a table and talked about plays, which was really great. In a pandemic, you can't do that. So I shifted it. And, um, but this is one thing that came out of Boar's Head, which was when we read uh, Cymbeline, I thought, what this is, is an episodic. This is Shakespeare's version of an episodic. Yeah. What if we did an episodic Cymbeline? And I handed it to my um, director of innovation and strategy, Scarlett Kim, who is the lead artist on that on that piece. That will also be presented this year. We're doing another round of Quills Fest, which is our our um, intersection between uh, the VR and immersive space and theater. Uh, it's a festival for two days where we talk about it. We we do work about it. We um, uh, um, commission artists to do. VR work who are both theater artists and also VR artists come together and create um, beautiful pieces of art. So it's going to be a great year. And then we'll end the season with uh, what we're hoping is going to be our longstanding new tradition uh, to do It's Christmas Carol uh, by a group called The Coconuts. Uh, and we, we premiered it this last um, uh, December and it was what everybody needed. It brought such joy. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really happy about this season and because of the way that we handled safety at OSF, I actually believe we'll get through, um, a good percentage of the season. I'm never going to say 100% because, um, that's what I learned from the pandemic is like, you know, it's all a mystery. (laughs) 
would like more information on the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's virtual programming O, you can find it on their website, osfashland.org. You Go Girl is not yet streaming there because of its deal with Sundance, but the other film that Garrett mentioned in our interview, Ashland, is available for viewing on their website. You can also get all of the information for their upcoming season, which is truly exciting. You heard how excited she was about the shows in the season on the site as well. And Jen, you know, she talked about in this interview the fact that this is a destination theater because it's not in a part of the country where there's enough people that can just wake up in the morning and be like, hey, I want to go see a show at OSF. They have to make pretty extensive plans to go to see this show. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this week in theater is because we want to highlight the theater that is outside of just New York. Uh, there is so much great theater happening across the country, whether it's these big regional theaters like OSF that has, you know, getting close to uh, a 9100 year history or a theater also in the Pacific Northwest, like the one you did an interview for. Yes, I think we're gonna stick to the same region of the country. Coincidentally, um, I've never been to Oregon, but I've always been fascinated by it. I have, however, been to Seattle, which is where my interviewee is from. His name is Cedric Wright. He's the master props artisan at a contemporary theater, otherwise known as ACT in Seattle. Their new production, Hotter Than Egypt by Yusuf El Gundi, is a world premiere. This production has been in previews and it just opened on Friday, February 4th. When they're done, they're going to package it up and send it down to Marin County, down by San Francisco, and it's going to continue its journey from there. So please enjoy my talk with Cedric about the challenges he's faced post-pandemic in the theater world. This week, I am talking to Cedric Wright from ACT, otherwise known as a contemporary theater in Seattle, Washington. Cedric is the master props artisan and their newest show, Hotter Than Egypt, is opening when? On February 3rd. February 3rd, and it's going to run through the 20th. Cedric, I'm so excited that you are joining us here on This Week in Theater. I am so excited to be here. Um, tell us a little bit about this new production, Hotter Than Egypt. Yes, Hotter Than Egypt is a world premiere play by Yusuf El-Gindi. He has done five shows here at ACT, and uh, it follows a Midwest couple from Wisconsin as they take a anniversary trip in Egypt and uh, meet people along the way, learn a lot about themselves. Uh, uh oh, what else? <laughs> is that what you wanted to know? Yeah, yeah. The production is directed by John Langs, who is also our artistic director. The production is starring Paul Morgan Stetler, Wasim Nomani, Nassim Etamad, Jen Taylor, Ahmad Kamal. Uh, we have a amazing cast, and uh, it's been really cool to have uh, all the understudies in the room as well. That's been excellent, is because understudies are saving theater right now. Of course they are. Thank you for mentioning that. That's a big topic we talk about here. Yeah, yeah. They uh, they're in house all the time, and uh, we don't often have understudies. But for this production, and I think uh, for the rest of the season, we'll be. Will be uh, 
definitely relying on them. Okay. So your production is opening February 3rd, you mentioned running for three weeks and then what for what's, what's going to happen next for the production? So this production is in association with Marin theater company. So after it's run here in Seattle, it's going to go down there and have a run uh, in their theater space. And for those um, who aren't aware, Marin County is mm-hmm. Northern California um, encompassing San Francisco, correct? Correct. And we're really lucky. We have their their dramaturg with us throughout the entire rehearsal production. And she's been able to uh, help us craft this production with both theater spaces in mind. And she's been a huge help to uh, to my de- my department. She's been a huge help for the cast in in putting together an entirely new show that takes place in a country that most of us have never been to. So it's been a real treat to have somebody from that theater helping with uh, dramaturgy. Has anyone involved in the production been to Egypt? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry. It's just interesting that you mentioned that, you know, that you're doing this play about this faraway place. And, um, you know, for a lot of us, you know, traveling to Africa seems so out of the realm of possibility, but Egypt is such an iconic destination, you know, that we've all grown up looking at pictures of the pyramids and everything in Cairo. So that'll be interesting to see it on stage. Yeah. It's been romanticized in the U S and absolutely. We, we, uh, we had to do a lot of research to find, we had to do a lot of research to find the right uh, the right culture. The, the play travels uh, across Cairo. We see it in a upscale hotel, but then we also see them in a museum and we see them in a couple different apartments and homes. So it took a lot of research to find out uh, a little more about <laughs> what day-to-day life is like in Egypt. Now you are the master props artisan. So tell us about some of the props you had to find or create. Um, like as you're saying, with to to create this modern, it's modern day, correct? It is. It is modern day. That is correct. Okay, so tell us about some of the props that you had to um, locate or create. Oh man, we had to build a lot of custom furniture for this piece. Uh, our theater space is very specific. It's theater in the round. We, uh, all of our scenery or props or furniture have to either come from a vom, uh, like, a, you know, one of the entrances to the stage, or it has to fly in from the fly system above or come in from the trap system below. So everything had to be custom. We built custom hotel furniture, uh, cabinets. We have uh, a hotel cabinet that has a built-in mini bar, a little fridge inside of it. Uh, almost all of our furniture does tricks. So a lot of the furniture will turn into something else for the next scene. Things come in and out of different pieces. Uh, so it was a huge challenge to, to design and work with our, our scenic designer on <laughs> creating a whole bunch of really unique pieces. So in building some of our custom furniture, we have utilized a tool that we've never gotten to use before. It's our first time using a Glowforge, which is a laser cutter. And with the Glowforge, we were able to cut out very intricate pieces and create really detailed applique that we added to our furniture pieces. And I'm telling you, they are gorgeous. 
one of our artisans uh, came up with the designs and we, uh, we have created with like with this tool, we have created such a rich, uh, like just, uh, it is a juicy, delicious set that is going to be an absolute feast to look at. We built for all of our custom furniture. We, we detailed it with pieces that we cut out like really tiny, intricate pieces that we cut out on our Glowforge. And uh, we were able to use a rented tool, but uh, because it was so successful, we're now getting our own Glowforge in the shop and we're very excited about that. And so I think going forward, like we're, we're gonna keep, we wanna keep the building process contemporary as the theater is contemporary. So we wanna, we wanna start using more and more tools that are available to us. That sounds really cool. Are there, there, I'm assuming there's pictures of the props and the set on the Instagram. There are. And there's pictures of what we cut out that with our laser cutter and oh, perfect. Uh, yeah, there are definitely going to be uh, some production photos. They just took photos a couple days ago. So those will start coming out and we'll be able to see them probably on the website and definitely on Instagram. Fantastic. How, how many others like on your crew to create all these challenging pieces for the show? Yes. My boss is the props master for ACT. And uh, it's just the two of us in my department. We have a props carpenter and craftsperson. And they do special projects, uh, sculpture and any other uh, uh, unique crafting <laughs> pieces that we have to build. So uh, for this production, we had to build... A, a sphinx head that is a sculpture in a museum. So our uh, our props craftsperson helped sculpt that with our paints department. It is gorgeous. It is unbelievably gorgeous. It looks it looks like uh, it looks like it needs to be in a museum itself. It's so beautiful. Uh, so it's me and it is our uh, craftsperson. And then we brought in, uh, we were able to hire a number of amazing artisans and craftspeople from all over the city to help build this production. We had carpenters, welders, uh, folks who do upholstery and soft goods. Uh, it took quite a team to put this production together. My goodness. And when did you first begin working on all of this? We started this production Back in around around the end of November, we opened up our Christmas show, and immediately once that was on its feet, we got to work on this show. And right away, we had we had uh, folks that we hired come in to start building the bones of it, and we have been working, I I think, all the way from November until now, uh, on on just the show. It is, it is a rich, very complex uh, build and it's been fun, but it, it took, it took a village to build this one. Now, the, is this one of the bigger theaters in Seattle? Yeah, it's one of sort of the five major theaters in Seattle. ACT is a, uh, a Lort theater and it's in the League of Regional Theaters. And so it is one of the, the larger theaters that's able to hire union crew and equity actors at, uh, with equity contracts and union contracts. So, uh, I'd say, I'd say we are, yeah, we're one of five of the larger theaters in the city. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been, it's been 
such a pleasure getting to work in, in a union shop for the very first time. I have been working towards this my whole career. And how many productions have you done with ACT, including this one? So I used to come in as uh, what we call overhire. I was hired as a freelancer and uh, came in to do small projects or I would help for an entire entire show or they would hire me for a day to come in and build one small thing. So it <laughs> it's funny, I've, been, I've probably been working on projects for ACT for the last... Uh, three or four years, maybe. Uh, as the master props artisan, I have only done two productions uh, actually on staff. But before before we uh, had all the shutdowns, I was able to do, I think, three or four productions with them as an interim in my position. So I wasn't actually on staff, but I was uh, I was still creating and building with, with the theater. And what would you say is your favorite part of your job? Oh, my favorite part of the job. I, (laughs) I love storytelling so much. And for me, uh, building world building is one of my very favorite parts of what I do. I, I'm very interested in how humans relate to the objects around them and how objects tell really rich histories. We pass them down from generations. We put them in museums. We put them behind glass. Human relationships to objects are so personal. And, and like I have in my pockets right now, I have items that are props. You know, I'm holding a phone. I, there's a remote sitting next to me. And these are all things that I use all uh, throughout my life. So for my job, getting to help tell the story with small personal details is my very favorite part. I love building. I love making fake cheese, you know, or sculpting sculptures. But I, I really love, I really love the personal aspect of it and 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 the the really intimate storytelling aspect. Now, you guys premiered last night, correct? We did. We had our very first preview. We put the show up in front of an audience. And how did that go? Now, now when you watch a preview, can you sit back and enjoy it? Or do you have to stand in the back and kind of like, (laughs) oh, that's not working. Oh, my God, I have to fix that. Are you one of those people? I'm one of those people. I am absolutely one of those people. And, uh, you know, there's still a few things, uh, some details that we have to work on and we'll be working up until opening night. And those details are all I can see when I see the show. And I'm back in the back taking notes and making lists, but it's, that's the fun part. I love, I love the final, final touches and last looks of a show. So yeah, it's stressful to watch maybe, (laughs) but ultimately it's, it's, uh, it's really satisfying to see a show that you've worked so hard, worked for a really long time and worked really hard on, uh, to watch that go up in front of an audience I'm a little stressed. I'm taking notes, but also there's major gratification and it it is really, really special to watch people enjoying the work that you do. Now, when you go see other shows, are you able to remove yourself from the job or are you always kind of on the clock saying like, oh, I know what would have worked better there or, oh, I'm really impressed the way they handled that. (laughs) Are you able to check out or are you always like a part of your brain always going to be in that mind? in that headspace. Oh my goodness. I am always on always. Uh, 
I I will always be in props headspace. I yeah. I think I was since I was a kid, but I I think that it doesn't ruin shows for me. I see a lot of theater. It's one of my hobbies, and it doesn't it doesn't ruin the show for me. I think getting to look for the little details and getting to know how things work backstage and under the stage actually for me enriches the experience when I see a show. I love to watch for those tiny little moments and watch, you know, watch how is somebody using that small little thing back in the back of the stage. It, I think it's exciting. So we've all experienced some challenges over the past few years. Um, Pandemic aside, what has been some of the, what has been some of the biggest challenges you and your crew have faced just in getting this production up and running? Oh man, we, when we came back, after the pandemic, it was like starting an entire new theater company. We had a lot of new people on staff. We had, (laughs) over the pandemic, we had a couple break-ins in the theater. So we had lost some of our tools. Luckily we were able, I know, we were able to get uh, insurance and we were able to buy new tools and uh, replace the things we lost. But it was it was kind of scrappy at the beginning. I think we had a few growing pains. We had a little bit of reorganization, some shuffling around. We just got a new managing director. Anita Shaw is amazing. And so that's been a real uh, a breath of new energy that came into the theater with a new, a new managing director. We've had new people in the scene shop and the costume shop. I'm new in the prop shop. So I think... With with all of the chaos that comes along with building back from the ground up almost, it feels special to be able to build something kind of new with a whole new team of people. I think it has bonded us in a way that none of us expected. We've had to rely on each other for a lot of things that traditionally in the past we may not have relied on each other for. And uh, I don't know. It's uh, coming back to life after so long felt special is not the word. I think, I think coming back to life after so long felt, I felt honored to be a part of bringing shows and theater back to the city. That's really nice. I really like that you said that. Yeah. It's been really, it's been really special. So hotter than Egypt is going to run for a few weeks. And like you said, you're passing it off to Marin County. What does the rest of the season look like? And what are some um, upcoming challenges that you have to start prepping for? Oh boy, the rest of the season is good, y'all. We have a show coming up next. We're, uh, once we get this show uh, open and on its feet, we're going to start building the next show, which is called The Thin Place. And it is a show about mediums and spirits and the thin place between the mortal world and the maybe not so mortal world. It is a very cool show. And it uh, it's going to have a few challenges in it because we have a few magic tricks. I can't tell you what they are, but it's going to be really, it's going to be really fun. I'm excited about that show. And then after that, we have Sweat. Uh, and Sweat was the show that we were working on. It was it was built, it was on the stage, it was ready to open, and then we shut down in 2020. So we 
kept the show as a package. It is in storage. We're ready to bring it back to life. So that's going to be our final show of the season. And I think it's going to be a really emotional, uh, an emotional experience to bring that show back to the stage and get it put back up on its feet because we, we, uh, we were so excited about that show when we built it before, and now we get to see it actually happen. And it's going to be, it's going to be really great. And sweat, um, sweat is a show about, uh, unions in Pennsylvania. I believe it's steelworking unions in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania and, uh, workers' rights, and it's really relevant. It's got a lot of good, di- like, uh, it's a forum for really good conversation, and I think it's going to be something that people really respond a lot, uh, respond very well to. You know, I'm actually familiar with uh, steel workers in Pennsylvania, so. You are. <laughs> I'm, well, that's where I'm from. Well, 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 you, you got to see this show. <laughs> oh, I'd love to. I'd love to come up there and visit again. Oh, um, Seattle's a fantastic city. If anyone's in the Pacific Northwest, you know, um, this is obviously a destination theater, by the way, Cedric is talking this up right now, but Seattle, the city is just a beautiful place to visit. Yes. Cedric, it has been an absolute pleasure having you for our inaugural episode of This Week in Theater. Oh, what a treat. Thank you. You can find ACT on Instagram, A-C-T-T-H-E-A-T-R-E, the real way to spell theater. And Cedric stated that they post a lot of the things he was talking about from the intricate designs they've done on the props to the furniture creation. It's a really great Instagram to follow. And if you want to follow Cedric, he has a website at cedricwright.com. That's C-E-D-R-I-C-W-R-I-G-H-T. And we will have links to all of the companies and people that we talked to in the show notes and in the article version of this episode at broadwayradio.com. So Matt, you had a New Year's resolution to see as much live theater as possible. I and did. I think you are going above and beyond. Yeah. My goal, if you remember, and I we talked about this on Broadway Radio episodes, was to see 52 shows outside of New York during the calendar year of 2022. Now, if I included New York, that would be fairly easy because as most Broadway radio listeners know, I pack in as many shows as I possibly can when I go to New York. Getting 252 would not be hard. But... Getting to see shows in Orlando where there's not nearly as much theater has been difficult in years past, so I wanted to challenge myself. So I started off by going to shows not only in Central Florida, but in other parts of Florida as well. And despite the fact that I've lived in Florida since 2014, I finally made it over to one of not only the best regional theaters in Florida, but one of the best regional theaters in the country, Oslo Rep. They are currently in the middle of their repertory season. Two of their three shows are already in performances. I saw two of those three shows. And when I get back from my upcoming New York trip, I will see the third. The first one I saw was actually the second to open. I went on opening night for Best Wall's Grand Horizons. I did not see the show when it was on Broadway back in 2019 and 2020 when it starred Jane Alexander, James Cromwell, Priscilla Lopez, Ben McKenzie, Malik Panchali, Ashley Park, and Michael Urie. But the reviews were very solid, if not a little dismissive by the vaguely situational comedy setup. However, in the Oslo production, 
I was struck nearly immediately, not just by the humor of the piece, that's a given with a lot of Best Wall's works, but also about how the show reveals both the heart and the hurt and how they can have generational ramifications. Wall's play examines gender roles and how those impact individuals as they get older and how they lead to dreams of all sorts, personal, professional, and romantic, being deferred. However, the biggest takeaway for me was a pretty profound one that hit me in a very specific part of my gut, especially at this time in my life, and that is that at some times, the happiest ending isn't actually a happy ending at all. So it, I recommend this one. It very much lived up to the situational comedy setup that a lot of people talked about, but to me, it was much deeper, which is not a surprise in a Best Wall show. The first show that opened in Oslo Rep's uh, repertory season was the second one that I saw. So following the Friday night opening night performance of Grand Horizons, I drove back down to Sarasota on Sunday to see my favorite play, Our Town. Director Desdemona Chang has staged the play in a very traditional way. You have the the ladders and the non-realistic sets and, and a very Brechtian perspective. But what struck me most about this production is the differences between how everyone else in Grover's Corner was portrayed in comparison to how the actress playing Emily performed her part. While the majority of the cast took an exaggerated, just north of realism approach to their performances, Caroline Nixon imbued Emily with an authenticity that felt nearly voyeuristic, even in the otherwise pedestrian first act. There was an uncomfortable vulnerability that she brought to the role that progressively laid her heart and her soul bare for the audience to see and feel. When we finally arrived at the poetically staged third act, Mixon's performance reminded me exactly why this show remains an important part of the canon 84 years after it was originally performed. The heart and the insights, the hurt and the humanity remind us what it means to be alive and not to lose sight of the joys inherent and the simple and familiar. Jen, you and I have talked about my love for Our Town in the past, and I openly wept during the first five minutes of the third act. Caroline Nixon delivered an, an absolutely fantastic performance from start to finish, but that third act um, was revelatory in a lot of ways. Grand Horizons runs at Oslo Rep through April 1st. Our Town ends its run on March 26th. And then The Great Leap begins performances on February 11th and will run through April 2nd. Matt, you've always been a big crier. Yes, um, very much so. Do you find yourself way more emotional now going to shows than you ever have before? Um, you know, I haven't thought about it, Jen. Uh, you know, I always talk about I'm a sentimental crier. So it's the, it's the relationships between friends and family and seeing those portrayed either in real life situations or in, you know, TV, film or theater that usually gets me. I, I don't know that it's changed a ton. The the frequency and the ease of my tears might have changed a little bit post-pandemic, but it's certainly the same types of things that lead me to tear up and 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 or openly weep. Just curious. 
The other show that I recently saw that might be of, of note to a lot of folks is uh, during its week-long stay at the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts here in Orlando, I saw the national tour of Ain't Too Proud, colon, The Life and Times of the Temptations, twice. First at the Tuesday night press night, and then on the final show of the stop on Sunday afternoon as part of my family's uh, season subscriptions. Much like I did when I saw the show on Broadway, I enjoyed it tremendously and left with virtually the entire Temptations catalog bouncing around my head, going from one song to the next. As soon as I got one unstuck, a new one would pop in. But I also realized that the show was far from a work of art. The direct address narration that book writer Katori Hall employs is simplistic, and I feel undermines a lot of the emotional resonance of these true life stories, because everything is observed from a distance, from a remove, through the eyes of an older, presumably modern day Otis Williams, the only surviving temptation. The musical never shows us the action through the eyes of any of the other characters, which can make the two and a half hour show feel a bit long and predictable by the end when the drama and emotions should be at their highest. However, the performances remain spectacular, as Otis, Marcus Paul James, brought a very Denzel Washington level of charm and charisma to the role, which, given that he rarely leaves the stage, handles the narration throughout, and still has to do all of the Temptations singing and dancing, is quite a feat. As fellow original Temptation Paul Williams, James T. Lane was the standout for me. While it sounded like a number of the other principals needed a, a day or two of vocal rest, Lane delivered a crystal clear vocal performance with a beautiful falsetto. And also, given the fact that the show traverses multiple decades, we saw the aging of Paul Williams up until the point when he died. And as the group's choreographer, Lane's dancing was always exceptional. While I don't think that the show is doing anything to break or even advance the art form, I am always happy to see it. I've seen it three times, and I would gladly go back and see it again. The tour is currently in Naples, Florida through this weekend before it heads to Fort Lauderdale, Fort Myers, Atlanta, Cincinnati, and Grand Rapids through the month of March. On the silver screen, we both saw the 2021 film, The Tragedy of Macbeth by Joel Cohen. And it was starring Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand. And we thought we would just chat about our feelings about that. Matt, what did you think of this portrayal of the classic Scottish play? It was really interesting, Jen, because this is a Macbeth unlike anything I've ever seen before on stage or screen. Uh, it felt very Coen Brothers, even though this was a Joel Cohen piece all by himself. He did not work with his brother Ethan on this at all. Um, but it felt very much like a Coen Brothers film where it was looking at the the paranoia and the the kind of claustrophobic nature that drives people to do truly awful things. So that felt authentically Cohen to me. But what was different from a lot of the previous Cohen Brothers films was that they didn't go for anything significantly over the top in terms of the performances. This was perhaps the most understated Macbeth and Lady Macbeth that I've ever seen. Um, and obviously that was done by design, because we know these two performers in Denzel and Francis 
can go big. We have seen them go big. So it was really interesting to me to see them pull back and play a different perspective on these two characters. I'm not 100% sure that it worked for me in terms of their performances. They are two of our greatest actors. I've talked often about how much I adore Denzel Washington on both stage and screen. Um, I was left a little wanting from their performances. Uh, and I was it felt like a missed opportunity to fully employ what they can do because they did have to be as re so reserved in this production. However, everything else to me was fantastic. The visuals of this, the kind of theatrical approach to a, a filmed adaptation was tremendous. Some of the supporting performances, especially um, Corey Hawkins uh, as Macduff, Bertie Carville as Banquo were fantastic. We can't not mention Catherine Hunter as the witches in the old man. And to me, who stole the entire film, Jen, was Alex Hassel, someone who I do not know anything about, as Ross. He apparently has a, a lot of experience on stage and screen in the UK, having played Hal in multiple Henry productions for the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, he's also apparently in the Netflix uh, Cowboy Bebop uh, adaptation. But he was tremendous in this role and his costuming was super interesting and he just felt very ethereal even though he wasn't one of the supernatural characters he felt very sinister uh and he kind of blew me away so uh i i liked this didn't love it and i was a little disappointed because i wanted to be absolutely obsessed with this film well it's funny because i think the things that you didn't like about it are what i did like about it i I studied theater in college, and so you get an ass full of Macbeth when you're studying theater. So I was, I, I've kind of had a 30-year break from it. So revisiting it and seeing it in this subtle, calm manner was really enjoyable. And even when you had suggested, like, hey, let's talk about that on the episode, I was like, oh, I'm not in the mood to watch a Shakespeare movie. Um, but I found myself really, really intrigued by it. And you know it's a hard sell for, to get me to watch a straight play, but yeah. for some reason, I was really captivated. Um, Catherine Hunter, um, what is there to say about that performance? And I think Frances McDormand is one of the greatest actresses of our generation, but for some reason, she it, she kind of took me out of it. I was never not aware I was watching Frances yeah. McDormand. If that makes any sense. Um, I think the star to me was Banquo's eyebrows. Bertie Carvel, yeah. They really, they were doing some serious work. Um, but I really, really liked it and I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. So I have to thank you for kind of nudging me to watch it because I would have put it off for another year or two. Yeah, and there's so many great people who pop up in this, whether they are from the Coen Brothers cinematic universe or not. We had Harry Melling as Malcolm. We had Brendan Gleeson as King Duncan. Uh, you had Stephen Root showing up uh, as the Porter. You had Sean Patrick Thomas in there. Jefferson Mays, who you and I were just talking about offline yesterday, playing the Doctor. Um, just some really great actors giving great Shakespearean performances in little, what amount of cameos, because while this 
play when performed is at least usually three hours. This is a crisp hour 40, hour 45, um, and it's available on Apple TV Plus. And I think we'll get a number of uh, Oscar nominations when they come out next week. I would not be surprised if Denzel Washington is nominated. I don't know that I would nominate him despite my long and enduring love for Denzel Washington. Um, I don't know that I would nominate him, but I, I, I have no problem with Denzel being nominated for playing Macbeth. Like, I think that is good for all of us theater people to see that on screen and hopefully have it rewarded so that more people do stuff like this in the future. I will hold out for a long shot nomination for Catherine Hunter. I don't see it happening, but I'm still going to hold out yeah. hope. I'm losing losing rapid faith in the Oscars, so this would go a long way with me if they nominated her. Okay, so Matt, you have one more review to talk about, and that is coming out of Northern California at Berkeley Rep. Yeah, this is not a show that I uh, got to see. Uh, This is kind of an extended version of what we often do on Today on Broadway, talking about the reviews for shows that are happening outside of New York. Swept Away is a new musical with a book by Tony winner John Logan and features music and lyrics by the Avett Brothers. It is directed by Michael Mayer and choreographed by David Newman. A lot of this team is coming back together after having originated uh, the Green Day musical American Idiot at Berkeley Rep in 2009. This show had originally been planned to premiere in 2020, but obviously with the pandemic, it has been pushed back by two years. The show is currently running and will be on stage and extended for the second and final time when it closes on March 6th. Just so you know what the background of the story is, it's set in 1888 off the coast of New Bedford in Massachusetts. When a violent storm sinks their whaling ship, the four surviving souls each face a reckoning. How far will I go to stay alive? And can I live with the consequences? I'm going to run through a number of local reviews out in the San Francisco area, starting with Lily Janiak from the San Francisco Chronicle. She said, quote, In its current incarnation, the show, even at a lean 90 minutes, takes an awfully long time to paddle out of the backstory's whirlpool into the present tense. It establishes, reestablishes, and re-reestablishes how Big Brother, played by Stark Sands, and Little Brother, played by Adrian Blake Ensco, just fell off the turnip truck. How they're not natural mariners. How they honor their parents, the farm, their god. How much Little Brother misses his girl. The exposition of the captain, Wayne Duvall, is so flowery as to become a red herring. But once the vessel hits choppy waters, the show writes itself. Rachel Houck's whopper of a set design makes three-dimensional Tetris of a tuberculosis ward, a whaler deck, a tempest in open water, with a reveal grander and more magical than anything millions of dollars in CGI could create. Kevin Adams' canny lighting design can create the illusion of a waterline on the ship's hull or help turn the dying into ghosts. The cast is aced, too. John Gallagher Jr. composes a whole melodic line within one-syllable spoken words, activating his whole body to his task in a way that makes him seem more alive than the rest of us. Randy McCollin from the Mercury News said, quote, You can do a lot worse than a musical that serves up the songs of the Avid Brothers and one of the best stage shipwreck scenes ever. That is what Berkeley Repertory Theater is offering with its world premiere staging of Swept Away, a stuffed-to-the-gills 90-minute musical about a whaling ship disaster and its horrific aftermath that was supposed to debut nearly two years ago. Given Berkeley Rep's history of launching Broadway musicals, American Idiot, Ain't Too Proud, a lot is expected from Swept Away. 
Heck, this is a show that seems to expect a lot from itself. It doesn't always deliver on its lofty goals, but even when it drifts, Swept Away is never less than compelling. Part of that is due to the world-class talent behind the show. And finally, Jay Barman from SFist wrote in his review, quote, I'll say before I get to some spoilers that there are several things about this musical story that haven't aged well in the pandemic. And while that's no fault of the creative team, it feels too like even in the before times, it would have been a weak vehicle for the Avett brothers' lovely and heartfelt music. There's a thinness to the plot and a decided lack of character development that leads to some extremely dramatic moments falling flat. And given what's to come in the show's latter 20 minutes, that feels inexcusable. Now, Jen, these reviews seem mixed to positive, but the reason they have these out-of-town tryouts is to get feedback like this, to see the show up on its feet, so that they presumably can make changes by the time it transfers to New York. So I hope that they have the opportunity to do this, because the creative team behind it, even though I am not necessarily an Avid Brothers I wouldn't even say fan because I don't even really even know any of their music, but it sounds interesting and sounds compelling. And I hope that this show does well. And I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing it in New York. Thank you for joining us on This Week in Theater. You can follow Broadway Radio at Broadway Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter at EponineQ and Matt at BWWMatt. You can always reach out to us on any of those platforms for suggestions for regional theater in your area. 